can turn in the book of Exodus. We continue our time in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We come to the fifth commandment, which begins in question 63 and goes through question 66. We'll just read question 64 for now. But first I'll read the fifth commandment as found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 12. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And question 64 asks, what is required in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. I once heard an old godly minister say, with his tongue firmly placed in his cheek, I believe, Uh, Being a pastor uh, would be the best job in the world uh, if it weren't for all you sinners. (laughs) Um, I think I understood what he was getting at. He was preaching through 1 Timothy at the time. And there is a a sense in which uh, being able to retire and hide yourself in your study and bury yourself in... Greek and Hebrew and prayer and meditation. I think it goes a long way to charm many a a young prospective seminarian uh, to pursue seminary. Like, oh, that sounds like a charmed life. His point was that it's not the life of a pastor. Uh, It's the life of a scholar or an academic, perhaps, but not the life of a pastor. The life of a pastor is bound up with the sheep. (laughs) The life of a pastor is bound up with wrestling with their own sin as well, which, interestingly enough, comes into unique perspective as he interacts with the sheep, (laughs) in a way that perhaps is analogous to a young man about to get married uh, who thinks that he's made quite a significant amount of progress in sanctification only to get married and realized he hadn't even begun at all and somehow he had convinced himself that he had. So it is for a pastor, as you darken the halls of seminary, you think that you would reach some sort of pinnacle of religion and that now it was just a matter of time before the heavenly Mount Zion opened and welcomed you much like Elijah of old, <laughs> only to find out, oh, I'm much worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. What does all this have to do with authority? 
It's rather a prelude to the second table of the law. And we move from the first table of the law, the first four commandments, which instruct us about our duties towards God. And if that weren't enough, (laughs) we find out that true religion doesn't just consist in wholehearted love of God. It consists in wholehearted love of others, which is hard. (laughs) I think we all tend to entertain a certain understanding of of religion that's uh, far more me and God as the litmus test of my maturity. It's perhaps one of the more humbling revelations of Scripture in that God would have us gauge our love for him by our love for those who bear his image and by our love for those who are being remade in his image and likeness. That's what the second table of the law confronts us with immediately, and so we can make a number of observations on that simple fact alone. The Lord is very interested in how you treat other people. The very moral law itself presses that upon us. That the standard of righteousness that is true for all times and in all places doesn't just entail our duties towards God. It entails our duties towards one another. That disabuses us of a certain notion of religion, does it not? a certain exclusively vertical notion of religion that I think combats a number of tendencies in our hearts. The tendency that was so charmingly put forth by that tongue-in-cheek minister, if we could just get away from these people, we would be holy. (laughs) Where God's plain design is that the Christian life unfolds with one another and that it is there that we grow in our holiness. It combats that withdrawal tendency, doesn't it? That circle the wagon tendency, that let's build a compound tendency, that Christian ghetto tendency, whatever iteration it takes. The moral law at the most basic level says no. The religious life is lived around others. And I'm very interested in seeing you love them. And isn't that what Christ did in his life of love towards the Father? Christ in his high priestly prayer says, I have glorified thy name. I have kept those whom you have given me, loving them unto the end. The love that he demonstrated to the world for his father was in, with, and under the love that he demonstrated for his neighbor, those whom the Lord had given him. Now, the Lord can call us to love our neighbor because he is the sovereign God, but it's stunning that he calls us to love our neighbor as one who has perfectly loved his creatures. It's astonishing whether 
by virtue of God's common grace or by virtue of God's saving grace. The instances which particularly set forth our mandate to love one another, whether it's to love those who belong to God or love those whom can be reasonably styled our enemies, in both instances it is rooted in God's common love or goodness towards that group or God's saving love or goodness towards that group. I trust you can recall the passages I'm alluding to. One of them we just encountered in Matthew 5. It's for your refreshment because it's been a little while. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust so that you may be called sons of of your father by virtue of resemblance there. By virtue of looking like the one who does this par excellence. We rehearse the excellencies of the gifts of sun and rain and the rich goodness of God extended unto his rebellious creatures indiscriminately. Mm-hmm consistently, relentlessly. And thus our Lord here roots our call to love our enemies in that undeniable demonstration of God's common grace towards humanity writ large. You go to other Instances where we see more specifically our duty to love one another. It's one of my favorite verses to cite. I won't even turn there. It's by this the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. He's very interested in our love for one another, it seems. We read in Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You hear the same sort of language there that we find in Matthew 5, stunningly. It is, be imitators, be seen as resembling God in this way. In what way? In your love. For what he has done perfectly, he is now teaching us to do imperfectly, yes, but truly and sincerely. So whether it's by virtue of an appeal to the moral law or by virtue of an appeal to creation at large or by virtue of appeal to redemption, we have the fact that he's very interested in our love for one another. (laughs) He's very interested in Assuring us that he didn't send Christ to die for a people who then remain in isolation from one another or who hide from a world that is fading away. Rather, he sent Christ to die and to secure a people who begin to flicker forth his supreme excellency in this. That God is love, beloved. 
and that Christ has shown us this otherworldly love in a way that staggers the imagination. So we're confronted first and foremost with the turn to the second table of the law with this fact that God is interested in us learning to truly love one another. But we can also point out that the fact that this second table of the law is summarized as the love of neighbor as self or elsewhere as do unto others as they would, you would have them do unto you. We can also make the observation that God's word prevents us from sentimentalizing love. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think that the common notions attending this call to love are intensely sentimentalized. To love someone means never to do anything that would upset that person. Well, then the Lord has not loved us because he accosts us with his love. Does he not? He disorients us with his love. In love, he makes known our poverty. Does he not? In love, he makes known our sin. Does he not? If the cross is a supreme display of love, we ought to perhaps use that word with a little more fear and trepidation because that is a terrible love. It's an awful love in the old sense of the word. The fact that love your neighbor as yourself summarizes the second table of the law prevents us from defining love as we prefer it and tells us that God has defined love for us. Beloved, what does it mean to love? Well, it's right here. (laughs) This is what it means to love. Doesn't Paul teach the same thing when he tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no harm to one's neighbor, meaning that actually hearing and having this law written upon the heart, not in any any facile or surface or letter deep type sense, but in the spiritual sense, the perfect sense, this is what love looks like. That prevents us from sentimentalizing. It prevents us from forming and fashioning love according to our own fancy, according to our own preferences, according to what suits us. And forms it and fashions it according to the wisdom of God, according to the truth of God. according to the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came full of grace and truth. The second table of the law reminds us that the Lord is very concerned and interested in our lives towards one another. And he's just as interested in justifying us as he is in sanctifying us and refashioning us to truly image him. Again, not perfectly image him, but truly image him. 
And it also reminds us that if we're going to truly love someone, that we rightly look to his word for what it looks like to love someone. We rightly look to his son who perfectly loved. Not by indulging, not by shrinking back when something needed to be said that might offend, not by rising up in harshness or cruelty, but in marching in love and in truth for the entirety of his ministry on earth, which he continues to now discharge at the right hand of the Father. We come to the second table of the law, reminded that all of life is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And true religion is not simply along the vertical, but it is absolutely tethered to and rooted in the vertical, Mm -hmm. without which it is mere sentimentalism. Mm -hmm. So coming to the command in and of itself, we're going to spend at least this week and next, maybe beyond And so I want to content myself with just one observation on the command itself. It's a well-known command. It is the bane of every child's existence and yours as well. (laughs) Note that the first commandment, the first commandment of the second table is honor your father and mother, giving it a certain priority. That was striking The sixth commandment isn't first on the second table. The seventh commandment isn't first on the second table. I thought both of those, the protection of life, the protection of the family, those seem like pretty good launching points for our responsibilities towards one another, for the governance of our moral life towards other people. Go ahead, protect life. Or protect the family. The family's the building block. It's like, well, more fundamental than the building block is the biological principle, life itself. But no, it's respect authority. Is that surprising? It at least raises the question of why. Why why this command? Why does this one come to the fore? in terms of the moral regulation of our life with reference to one another. I don't have all the answers, but I made a couple of observations. That with reference to our interactions with one another, it's incredibly helpful to remember that we're creatures. That's what being reminded that you have a mother and a father presses it home, does it not? Even the highest authority conceivable, Sennacherib himself, is forced to acknowledge he's got a mommy. (laughs) He's got a daddy. He learned things. He was taught things. By virtue of his derivation, even with restriction to a human plane. 
that cultivates a certain amount of humility, does it not? We've talked in the past about the humanizing tendency that just considering that someone has a mother can bring about. I have Judges 5 in mind, as I mentioned, I've been able to kind of review some of the material in Judges. And at the end of Judges 5, at the fall of Sisera, Sisera, you remember Sisera? He was a tyrant, I mean, a cruel monster, killing husbands of Israel, making widows in Israel, making orphans in Israel, terrorizing Israel, making Israel's life miserable. And then he falls at the hands of Yael. And the poem ends, the song of Yahweh's victory ends with Sisera's mother. <laughs> and for this brief moment, Sisera is humanized. He's enemy of Israel is humanized. You see your enemy as a human being. We're reminded that we have mothers and fathers and thus we are all on the same ground as it were in terms of the call to respect one another. As we're going to find out, this command to honor the father and mother addresses those who are below, but it brings with it instruction for all of our stations, such that it's not just discharging our duty to those who have authority over us, but it's discharging our authority to those over whom we have authority. It's discharging our responsibilities to those along whom we stand. And that fundamental line of respect, that fundamental heartbeat of respect that's discharged through these various stations is pressed home pithily by reminding us, hey, we've all got a mom, we've all got a dad. In one sense, we all stand on the same ground. Oh, God's word is wonderful. That's amazing. Is it not? There's a sense in which our moral life towards one another begins with acknowledging, hey, we're all creatures. Is that what James says as he reminds the church of the respect and the care that sinners deserve based on the fact that they are in the image of God? It's just a slightly different angle on that. The outset of instructing us in our moral responsibility towards one another reminds us we're all creatures and thus there's a certain amount of respect and dignity that all deserve in their various stations. But it also confronts us with our sin, doesn't it? There's a certain fittingness to this one coming out the gate. Because if you were going to pick a command in the second table that strikes at the heart of our problem, it's this. The issue of authority and transcending one's station goes back to the garden itself, does it not? And there's a sense in which we all image our father Adam and we're wrestling with the old man and his relentless problem with authority. We have a problem with authority. I think I've mentioned this before, another godly minister whom I look for. If you have to be instructed to honor the one who carried you to term, nursed you, raised you in the most vulnerable stages of your existence. If that 
fact and set of facts alone isn't self-evidentiary enough to show that you owe honor to this person. If you need to be told it, it's plain we have an authority problem. (laughs) This confronts us with our sin. All the commands confront us with our sin in a certain way, but the call to confine ourselves to our station which we all inhabit in some degree or another, presses upon our hearts that fundamental tendency to rise up and to therein find blessedness, liberation, life. It's the diabolical lie from the very beginning. You've got to rise to be God. You've got to transcend station to be God. And the trouble and the tumult that has come forth from that is evident. And last, it highlights how every sin is multiply heinous. Every violation, every sin has different layers of heinousness to it, which is made plain in the multiple commands that are broken. There's a sense in which every violation of the commands six through 10 is a violation of the fifth commandment. And this in two cents, I believe Thomas Boston made this observation. First, if you're going to violate any of the other commands in the second table, you are by definition dishonoring them. <laughs> So not only do you violate the sixth, but when you violate the sixth, you violate the fifth because you have not done your duty either to a superior, an equal, or an inferior. For whosever life you've taken, they fit into one of those stations. The same is true for seduction. The same is true for theft. The same is true for bearing false witness. We see the multiple degrees of sin's heinousness on display in that our sins are not bare infractions of one command, but they transgress the law of God. They transgress the righteousness of God. They are accosting the holiness of God. But there's also the sense in which The violation of any of the commands 6 through 10, no murder, no adultery, no theft, no false witness. If you break any of those commands, undoubtedly you are disregarding some human authority who has affirmed the goodness of those commands. Chances are you're violating your parents' commands. And if you're not violating your parents' commands, you're violating the state's commands because there has never been a nation that has said, hey, go nuts with reference to murder. The magistrate is always there with the sword saying, hey, don't murder. (laughs) You can't murder. And so a violation is a double violation in terms of the law of God on display in that commandment and the law of God on display in this commandment. Sin is shown to be multiply sinful. 
as it were. And that's remarkably humbling. And it's humbling because we know that we have violated these things. And it wasn't just a bare transgression of one letter of one law. It was a defiance of the Holy One of Israel in our pursuit of self-love. But it also magnifies the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, who stooped from a station inconceivable to do good to his inferiors and to bear in his body not a bare transgression of one commandment, but the heinousness of our sins. We began with the reflection of the troubling love on display at the cross, a disorienting love on display at the cross. For in the cross, sin is seen for what it is, not a bare misdemeanor, but cosmic treason demanding the blood of of the Son of God to make atonement. But at the cross is also revealed another mystery as well. An offended God who's pleased to showcase an otherworldly love in making atonement for sinners through the blood of his Son. This is the love of God displayed not towards an infraction but towards sinners who have truly violated in heinous, inexcusable, and relentless ways calls that are self-evidently good issued from God's own word. May he humble us in the light of such a double testimony towards our sin and towards the excellencies of his love. Let's pray. (laughs) Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the plainness of your word, the relentlessness with which it speaks of the righteousness and holiness on display in the law and of the goodness and mercy on display in the gospel. So we pray that more and more as we grapple with our hearts in the light of your law, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would place us prostrate before you, that you would be pleased to lift up our heads as you whisper into our ears the truth of the gospel, that Christ has atoned, that you have not spared the Son to make us your own. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.